thinking that my love could hold you All right, we are back. Let's talk a little bit more about some crazy, stupid stuff. A couple years back, we had Daniel Okrent on this program talking about his book on Prohibition, which featured prominently in the Ken Burns PBS special. That interview, by the way, was turned down for airing on Capital Public Radio because, it was said at the time, they couldn't see the local connection to it. My argument that it, the fact that the show was going to appear in 100,000 local televisions didn't carry the day. I think they must have changed their policy, however, because last week they had a segment talking about the royal baby, which, frankly, I'm hard-pressed to see a local connection to. But alas, I don't set policy. Anyway, in conjunction with Prohibition, Mental Floss had a, had a piece in the July-August issue about America's lethal cocktail party that's worth, I think, a slight digression into. Noted the magazine, back in the mid-20s, the American government was at its wit's end with the fact that, of course, prohibition laws were proving futile. Americans were still drinking, and they were just doing it on the sly. Gangs were stealing large quantities of industrial alcohol, which was used from everything from fueling machines to sterilizing instruments, then redistilling the hooch to remove impurities before putting it on the market. Of course, in an effort to fight back, the brilliant minds at the Bureau of Prohibition came up with a rather shocking idea. What if it poisoned the industrial alcohol supply? And, yes, in 1926, the feds bought into the idea. They issued regulations that required manufacturers to make industrial alcohol more lethal. The new formulas included adding mercury salts, benzene, and kerosene. As a result, alcohol-related deaths skyrocketed, with officials attributing more than 1,000 deaths to the program in its first year alone. The public was outraged, said New York City medical examiner Charles Norris, one of the measure's more outspoken foes. The United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths. The government, however, held firm on its position, even as the body count rose. In New York City, 400 people died in the first year. 700 died the next year. And the pattern was replicated in cities across the country. Yet the prohibitionists continued to defend the law. Noted Nebraska's Omaha Bee, probably under the influence of the Anti-Saloon League, Dr. Norris should logically next demand palatable varnish and potable shellac. Must Uncle Sam guarantee safety for souses? And yes, it took more than 10,000 American deaths and a furious public backlash for the government to quietly end its chemist's war. And of course, some of you may remember in the 1970s, the fact that Paraquat, a potent herbicide, was uh, sprayed all over Mexico at the behest of the U.S. government uh, on pot fields. Unfortunately, pot contaminated by Paraquat was sometimes fatal when smoked. I remember my roommate reading a letter to the bee back in that era where a woman wrote in to say, don't these people realize that marijuana is bad for them? Adding, keep spraying, Mexico. Speaking of the spraying of poisons, uh, Marilyn Vos-Savant's column in Parade Magazine uh, had an interesting little item a week or two ago. Someone wrote in to say, when I discovered some small black bugs in my flower, my boyfriend suggested that we keep it. He said the bugs were harmless and might even be a nutritious form of protein. I threw out the flower anyway. 
Well, was he right? Said Marilyn Vos Savant, reputedly the world's smartest woman, yes, you may be surprised to find out that many cultures happily and healthfully raise insects for their taste and nutritional value, like tiny livestock. Our Western cultural aversion is mostly learned, not natural. In addition to the eek and ugh responses we acquire as children from our parents, we also learn to associate insects with disease. But they aren't prone to harboring pathogens any more than the meats we eat, from cows, chickens, fish, etc., which we know must be handled carefully and cooked properly to make them safe for consumption. More remarkably, we go to enormous effort and expense to rid our crops of the ubiquitous little pests, even to the extent that we worry about sickening ourselves with pesticides. Despite all this, I would have tossed out that flour too. Nothing against flour beetles, but I'd rather liven up my dishes with pepper. And I just have to say, here, here, I remember very well as a student in Davis, working in the Hunt Wesson plant out on Colville Boulevard, realizing that the tomato growers contracted with Hunts, and whoever they were selling their tomatoes to, to spray their fields six times a year, whether it needed it or not. They wanted to just make damn sure no bugs got into the tomato sauce. So to avoid any possibility of eating bug parts, which are not only harmless, but might even be beneficial, we instead sprayed those fields with nerve gas, which is, in fact, what most pesticides are. Chemical weapons which kill. The thing is, they kill the bugs easier than they kill us because the bugs are a lot smaller. They can tolerate a much smaller dose only. I thought it was pretty crazy then. I still think it's pretty crazy now. Because... Because it is. It's really crazy. Speaking of pot, as we were a moment ago, there was a nice, big, splashy color photo in the B, the forum section last, uh, last Sunday, showing that the environment is going to pot. Some newly terraced hills above Lake Oroville were shown with marijuana plants on them, noting that growers are bulldozing hillsides, uprooting trees, digging wells, and using ag chemicals, causing environmental problems. Apparently some local Republican politicians are very up in arms over this possibility of people growing pot out in the forest. Why, my God, they're bulldozing hillsides. <laughs> Meanwhile, logging companies can clear-cut clear thousands of acres, and this is considered just fine. Now, we're not, we're not coming out and saying, you know, we think that bulldozing uh, hillsides and, you know, using chemicals and uprooting trees and, you know, diverting water supplies is a good thing, but... When you put it in perspective, who's doing more harm, logging companies or a few pot growers? I can't seem to put my hands on the piece right now, but I was reading a couple days back on the internet about how our, some of the brilliant minds we have, and I guess it's the Fish and Wildlife Department, I think it's the feds in this case, are proposing to save some of the spotted owls by shooting the other owls. And no, I'm not making that up. How about if we save the spotted owls by nut cutting down the forest? Isn't that the original idea? Well, something else that puzzles me uh, um, about conservatives, they've been making a lot of noise of late about human trafficking, implying that uh, there's this huge national epidemic of human trafficking, which is, as far as I can tell, is, it apparently is some sort of effort to go after... Uh, um, sex workers, in particular pimps who are accused of being traffickers, and I'm sure in some cases they are. 
But is this the huge national problem it's being made out to be by some? Um, I have my doubts. And I was especially taken aback by a piece in New Scientist on the July 6th issue, uh, where a woman gave some rather provocative answers to some questions about the sex industry in, in their one-minute-with editorial piece. Uh, they talked to a woman named Laura Augustine. It was noted that after 20 years of studying the sex industry, Ms. Augustine said most of what we know about trafficking is wrong. The magazine asked her, why do you object to a proposal in the UK to clamp down on prostitution by criminalizing the purchase of sex? She responded, millions of people around the world make a living selling sex for many different reasons. What are they expected to do? This would take away their livelihoods. Selling sex may be their preference out of a limited range of options. In the UK, migrants may have paid thousands of pounds to get here. The debt has to be paid off somehow, whether it's working in the back of a restaurant or selling sex. Migrants who sell sex can pay off the debt much faster. The magazine noted that prostitution is dangerous, especially for those who work on the street. Said Laura Augustine, Women who work on the street are a small proportion of all the people who sell sex. Many more work through escort agencies, brothels, or independently from home. It is disrespectful to treat them all like victims who have been duped into what they are doing. In the UK, there are thousands of articulate sex workers who say, leave me alone. I did know what I was getting into, and I'm okay doing it. Magazine asked, isn't the happy hooker a myth? Doesn't research show it is a miserable existence? Augustine responded, when people tell me they've never met anyone who wanted to be selling sex, I ask where they did their research. They asked, what about trafficking of unwilling victims? She responded, the numbers of trafficking victims reproduced by the media have no basis in fact. There is no way to count undocumented people working in underground economies. Investigators showed that one big UK police operation failed to find any traffickers who had forced people into prostitution. Most migrants who sell sex know a good deal about what they are getting into. Their final question was, if there's no proof that it is common, why is there widespread belief in sex slave trafficking? She responded, why do moral panics take off? Focusing on trafficking gives governments excuses to keep borders closed. Perhaps it's easier to campaign moralistically against prostitution than to deal with the real problems, dysfunctional migration and labor policies that keep large numbers of people in precarious situations. We can't pretend to have any insight into this particular social uh, question, but I must say, Laura Augustine's answers are provocative. Now, in this country, uh, the Republican Party, which appears to have been taken over by nuts some time back, seems determined to stop Obamacare. I believe the House just voted for the 40th time to stop funding of Obamacare, even though they know the Senate won't pass this. But apparently desperate Republicans are testing a new frontier of radicalism. As of October 1st, the U.S. government will be unable to pay its debts unless Congress first votes to raise the federal debt ceiling. Last week, a group of GOP senators joined colleagues in the House in vowing not to raise the debt ceiling unless the president agrees to defund, in effect, repeal the Affordable Care Act. We'll continue to see what unfolds there. The GOP also appears determined to enact bills in various states that would... uh, put a 20-week ban on abortion. Texas, uh, 
I guess, became the 12th state to enact the 20-week ban since, uh, since the year 2010. Slate.com noted that uh, they're trying to do this through the back door, generally, like in Ohio, which quietly added anti-abortion amendments to a budget bill, or North Carolina, which attached a slew of abortion restrictions to legislation meant to prohibit the threat of Sharia law in the country, which uh, Slate noted, how's that for irony? Now, we talked uh, many years back when we first started this program about why it is someone might need to get a late-term abortion, which, which has subsequently now been banned in the United States. We spoke with uh, Vicki Wilson, a registered nurse, and her husband, Bill Wilson, an ER physician, both friends of mine, about how they had to seek this procedure despite the fact that their child was in its 34th week. The reason they took the route of a late-term abortion was the fact that, tragically, the child's head in utero had not grown properly. The fetus's brain had, in fact, been exposed, which had caused seizures and brain damage in utero. Their child had zero chance of survival, and therefore, the decision was made to take the route that would be safest for Vicky. We would refer you to our archives for a discussion we had about, uh, about that and about their subsequently testifying before Congress on this issue. We would remind listeners that according to Roe versus Wade, abortions in the first trimester, approximately 13 weeks, were judged legal. Abortions in the second trimester depended upon state law, and abortions in the third and final trimester were generally banned except in certain instances. The Wilsons were one of those instances. For legislators across this country to step in and enact laws that as a blanket, ban abortions, restrict them after 20 weeks, is a bad idea. And that's about all we're going to say about that today. All right, in the six or seven minutes we've got left, let's, let's, let's take a detour into some deep politics. I'm not sure whether he invented the term, but uh, Peter Dale Scott, professor of English at UC Berkeley and prolific writer about uh, what's really going on behind the scenes, has been for decades and continues to be a great investigative journalist. I think we're going to put on our website a link to his recent piece in the Asia-Pacific Journal titled U.S. Government Protection of Al-Qaeda Terrorists and the U.S.-Saudi Black Hole. You can pull this up on the web by going to the Asia-Pacific Journal, Volume 11. This is Issue 29, Number 1, dated July 29th, 2013. It's a long piece. You're going to have to probably take notes Put on your thinking cap and pay attention when you read this thing, but when you're done, you'll have learned a thing or two. We, we would also refer you to our own three-part interview with Peter Dale Scott in our archives about his book, The Road to 9-11. But I think I, I can do no better than to quote from Peter's piece. He notes, For almost two centuries, American government, though always imperfect, was always a model for the world of limited government. Having evolved a system of restraints on executive power through its constitutional arrangement of checks and balances. Since 9 11, however, constitutional practices have been overshadowed by a series of emergency measures to fight terrorism. The latter have mushroomed in size, reach, and budget, while the traditional government has shrunk. As a result, we have today what the journalist Dana Priest calls two governments the one its citizens are familiar with, operated more or less in the open. The other, a parallel top-secret government 
whose parts have mushroomed in less than a decade into a gigantic, sprawling universe of its own, visible only to a carefully vetted cadre, and its entirety visible only to God. He notes this parallel government is guided in surveillance matters by its own Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, known as the FISA Court, which, according to the New York Times, has quietly become almost a parallel Supreme Court. Thanks largely to Edward Snowden, it is now clear that the FISA court has permeated this deep state to expand surveillance beyond the tiny number of known and suspected Islamic terrorists to any incipient protest movement that might challenge the policies of the American war machine. He goes on, Americans have by and large not questioned this parallel government excepting that sacrifices of traditional rights and traditional transparency are necessary to keep us safe from al-Qaeda attacks. However, secret power is unchecked power, and experience of the last century has only reinforced the truth of Lord Acton's famous dictum that unchecked power always corrupts. And then what I would have to say is a rather platinum-plated sentence... Peter notes, it is time to consider the extent to which American secret agencies have developed a symbiotic relationship with the forces they are supposed to be fighting, and have, even on occasion, intervened to let al-Qaeda terrorists proceed with their plots. Quoting himself about proceeding with their plots, Peter says, these words, as I write them, make me wonder yet again, as I so often do, if I am not losing my marbles and proving myself to be no more than a zany conspiracy theorist. Yet, I have to remind myself that my claim is not one coming from theory, but rests on certain undisputed facts about incidents that are true, even though they have been systematically suppressed or underreported in the American mainstream media. He goes on, More telling, I am describing a phenomenon that occurred not just once, but consistently, almost predictably, We shall see that among the al-Qaeda terrorists who were first protected and then continued in their activities were Ali Mohammed, identified in the 9-11 Commission report as the leader of the 1998 Nairobi embassy bombing, Mohammed Jamal Khalifa, Osama bin Laden's close friend and financier while in the Philippines, of Ramzi Youssef, principal architect of the first WTC attack, and his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, identified in the 9-11 Commission report as the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks. He also notes Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hamzi, two of the alleged 9-11 attackers whose presence in the United States was concealed from the FBI by CIA officers for months before 9-11. In the minute or two I have left, I cannot possibly elaborate very much on what is in this piece, but... Dear listener, I strongly suggest that you check it out. We will try and put a link to it on our website. For our part, we will do our best to travel down to Berkeley once again to have Peter elaborate a bit on this remarkable piece. The items in uh, in this article are extremely well documented, and you can find corroborating evidence all over the web in reliable sources. One of the keys to this is what Peter describes as the U.S.-Saudi black hole. I'm not sure technically whether the Saudi Arabian oil fields are the world's largest compared to what they have in Russia, but it certainly is the world's largest source of exported oil that has created a very special relationship between the Saudi government and our own. 
Wrote Peter at the conclusion of the article, I'm suggesting that there is a high-level fusion of interests between the U.S. and Saudi governments, oil companies, and banks, not to mention facilitating alliances like the Carlyle Group, which the CIA tends to represent continuously and not just ad hoc for the sake of any one particular goal. The ongoing protection given through the years to criminals like Salome, Ali Mohammed, Al-Midhar, and Al-Hamzi should be seen as symptoms of this high-level fusion of interests. Needless to add, the 99% of ordinary American people, having as a result now suffered a series of recurring attacks, the first World Trade Center bombing, the 1998 embassy bombing, and possibly even 9-11 itself, have been losers from this arrangement. He concluded with, I'm confident that the mystery of U.S. government protection to terrorists can be traced in part to this roof of inscrutable government, financial, and corporate relationships between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. There is a black hole at the center of this roof in which the interests of government, petrodollar banks, and multinational oil companies are all inscrutably mixed. It's not a simple narrative. It's not a simple story, but I recommend you tackle it, dear listener, and we'll try to do the same in the future. But for now, we need to take a short break, and in our final segment today, we're going to lighten the mood considerably. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around.